This is Kyle Hartung from Jobs for the Future, or JFF, and this is the Building Equitable Pathways podcast. In this series, leaders from across the country working at the intersection of K-12 education, post-secondary education and training, and workforce development will share their insights and perspectives grounded in practice to shed light on the why and the how of identifying and dismantling inequitable structural and systemic barriers to improve educational and career outcomes for youth. Our nation's education and workforce systems are not working the way they should. There are deep and persistent inequities in how people access information, opportunity, and support critical to their economic and career advancement. If we are going to get to equitable pathways systems, we must reimagine and transform the systems themselves. In our first episode, we will discuss the distinction between the fruit and the roots of racial inequity in the United States and how that shows up in our education to career systems. We will also begin to shine a light on what tackling these complex problems looks like in action with leaders and practitioners purposefully designing to disrupt inequity. To help us to do that, today I am joined by two very special guests with whom I've learned so much. My name is Claire Minson. I'm the founder and principal consultant of Sandra Grace LLC, which is a change management consulting firm predominantly working with groups and organizations in the nonprofit talent and workforce development sector at the intersection of workforce development and racial equity. Hi, my name is Joshua Poyer. I am the vice president of Student Voice and Hub Programming at Here to Hear, a Bronx-based nonprofit organization looking to break pathways with our educational partners and employer partners. So Claire Minson, Josh Poyer, thank you so much for being such excellent partners, collaborators, friends, and co-conspirators in this uh, endeavor we're taking on together. Um, And thank you so much for joining this conversation today. I'm really looking forward to it. As we've already talked about in our collective work here, promoting and centering racial equity in the design of pathway systems is no small task. This is big work. And our community of practice is really fortunate to have you both as critical partners and thought leaders. And I'm really excited about this conversation today. So Claire, something you noted, and I wanted to highlight here in your recent blog post about the work we're doing together, really resonated with me. And in that piece, you note, quote, while systemic inequity may be intentional, it is not inevitable. It can be changed if we are willing to challenge existing framing and assumptions about the problems and how to solve them. I think this is right on point. And like what it makes me think about, right, is we have to make sure that we are solving for the real problem. So I'd love for you to talk about what you frame as the fruit and the root and how you're using this and how this is a helpful construct in setting the stage for ultimately a real conversation among partners about what centering racial equity in the design of systems will actually take. Yeah, that's a great question, Kyle. So first, we always have to start with definitions, right? So racial equity, if we understand it as both a process and the outcome, you know, as an outcome is the condition or the end goal that would be achieved if conditions assigned to historically oppressed groups or, you know, racial and ethnic identities assigned to folks no longer acted as the strongest predictor of how they fare in life outcomes, right? As a process, it's the way that we do things, the way we make decisions, the way we engage others, the way we design programs and policies and examine data. And most important to notice, um, and what's sometimes often forgotten, is that racial equity is one part of racial justice. 
So if we recognize that it's one part of racial justice, then it requires us to examine root causes of inequities, right? Particularly the elimination of policies, practices, cultural messages, and harmful stereotypes and narratives that reinforce differential outcomes by race or fail to eliminate them. And so I talk about it in the framing of fruit and root. So we have to address the fruit or the thing that we see, right? The fruit is the result of these underlying issues, right? Which are the root causes. So those are the racist policies, the racist practices, racial, the racist cultural messages, or the root will be hiring policies, right? That are race neutral or workplace culture that allows the perpetuation of racial microaggressions, right? Or performance evaluations that do not include supervisors' role in supporting a racially equitable and inclusive context and workplace culture. So the fruit, right, is the occupational segregation, right? Or the limited number of students, racially diverse students in particular positions. I like to think about fruit and root. I'm learning that analogies in this work really help people to grasp these hard concepts. Really briefly, could you give a highlight about like when we talk about the fruit and the root at an individual level or an institutional level or a system level, like what's a really quick example you could give to help ground this conversation before I pivot over to Josh for a minute? That's a great question, Kyle. Let me take a quick step back, right? In order to address and examining the fruit and root, we cross that with the four levels of racism, right? Which you're naming, but I just want to name that explicitly. So that personal or individual levels, the beliefs that we hold within ourselves. And so that may mean I make a statement, right? I make a comment about a particular racial group that is rooted, whether it's conscious or not, that's rooted in this deep internalized belief and ideas about racial hierarchies, right? If you will. And so the personal level is, is how I'm showing up in my individual life and the things I may say or not say that's rooted in kind of how I've internalized this, this ideology of racism and white supremacy, right? At the interpersonal level that we're really talking about how we engage with each other. So that may mean a racial microaggression that's showing up, right? I may not understand it as that. I may not have an awareness that that's what's happening, but it could be an offhand comment about a racial or ethnic group. Again, that's rooted in my personal belief, but that's showing up in my interaction. Or it could mean I actually don't want to engage with the young, young people of color that I'm working with, or the way that I engage with them is really not warm, is not building a relationship. And so those are so, some of the manifestations of what's happening kind of in the root, right, inside of me. And at the institutional level, the fruit we would see occupational segregation, right? So workers of color are segregated in low-wage positions at the front line within an organization. That's the manifestation. But the root of that is then the hiring policies or the requirements in the job descriptions that segregate and create a context where people of color in particular are left relegated within those frontline positions. And so hopefully that was helpful you know, what that explanation even highlighted for me in the moment was how inextricably linked they are and how sometimes it's hard to differentiate. Is this a fruit or is this a root? Is this thing showing up? Is it visible or is it hidden, right? Is that fruit something I can see or is it underneath the surface and I can't really see it, but maybe I know it's there or it's leading to this outcome that I see? Thank you for that. That is, um, and and now Josh, this is where I, I would love to bring you into this because I think and Claire, your, the expertise you're bringing in your historical work and thinking in the workforce development systems and really trying to unearth these the fruits and the roots across these different levels of systems. And then obviously in this work, we're talking about the marriage of the education and workforce system and really getting to the heart of the problems there. And so, Josh, can you help us understand these ideas 
in the practice that you're engaged in in New York City and how this way of thinking about them brings your work into a different kind of focus, right? So for instance, what are the fruits as you see them when you take a hard look at the current education and career system in New York City? And then what are the roots there? And, and on the back end of this, you know, what is here to here doing to address this, this analysis and, and the outcomes that you're looking at? Thank you, Kyle. And, and I'm so happy to be in this space with, with you and, and Claire. And I so appreciate this root and fruit framing. I think it, it's, it's been a, a really important and impactful conversation. Um, so for us, you know, we work in New York City and historically, you know, local talent oftentimes gotten overlooked, especially talent that come from communities like the Bronx, right? So, you know, young adults and their allies, families, educators, practitioners, you know, they're calling for a change in a system that has failed to meet their needs, the needs of their students, needs of educational systems, and they're also reflecting on like the lack of opportunity. And many times when students do have access to some sort of work-based learning experience, many times the quality and culture that exists in that space doesn't allow for that student to have a meaningful work-based experience, right? And so unfortunately, you know, the educational system is not well designed to help all students connect with their passions uh, directly to meaningful careers. And so we're hearing from employers how oftentimes graduates are not fully equipped with the technical skills that are needed on a day one job, right? So with here to here, you know, we've always been thinking about, you know, if we were to analyze the root, right? How can we bring all of these different systems together? How can we create a shared foundation of learning and understanding and commitment? And then also, how can we leverage that momentum to really help shape policy so we can begin to solve for not only the issues of yesterday, but potentially for the issues of tomorrow? So um, at Here to Here, we've been able to launch a Braided Pathways community of practice, which includes our school partners, our student partners, employer partners. Um, and then through that process, we've been able to develop a framework that we call the key distinguishers, which essentially is a core set of practices, right? That allows for high quality braided pathway experiences. So students can connect their learning in the real world with their learning in the classroom. And, and we're seeing that, you know, once you make the outside part of the inside in terms of education, students show up differently, curriculum feels different, employer partners begin to be more embedded in curriculum. And so you see, we begin to see this nice weave or this nice braided pathway that allows young people to explore parts of themselves that they normally wouldn't be able to. Thanks for the outlay of that, Josh. And so as you think about the, the braided pathway strategy, um, you know, I, I, we often talk about braided funding, and I love the way that you've conceptualized the idea of the braided pathways as a way to really visualize all of these systems and actors coming together. How does that approach get to the roots, the way that Claire has framed up for us here, or, or where are there gaps between what you've identified as roots and you're hoping that this strategy can accomplish in terms of bridging the, the gap between where getting from here to here, so to speak. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think when you think about in this particular case, the, the key distinguishers, it really is a framework for equity, right? Um, how are we able to create the conditions in which our young people can not only survive, but thrive? And then also recognizing the value that our young people bring into these spaces, right? And so for us, a big piece of our work is being able to hold the mirror in front of our faces and in front of the faces of our employer partners. We adopted 
a racial equity prime, which was developed by one of our founding partners, DreamYard. And this really allows us to, to think about accountability in a real way. Uh, when you're thinking about how decisions are being made, uh, when you think about you know who's being affected by those decisions, uh, sometimes it's important to pause and take a moment to reflect and think about how are those decisions affecting people on the ground, the people that will be most impacted by those decisions. And so we take that approach and really thinking about how this work you know, launches young people, launches employers into this braided pathway model where all folks can kind of benefit, right? Because I think a lot of times when you think about employers and employers just opening up their doors to young people, uh, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, they do it as a way to pat themselves on the back and say, okay, we've we done something great here. We've, you know, offered this internship or offered this opportunity to this young person, but not really recognizing and realizing the value that that young person may bring to the employer, right? So we have to do some reflective work with all of our stakeholders and really recognize that, um, you know, if we want to develop a talent pipeline system that works for all, we need to understand the value that everyone brings to the table. I love that example of of the racial equity prime and, and organizations like Here to Here and and our other partners in this work needing these kinds of tools if we're really going to change these conditions at the systems writ large. But what I hear in this, and Claire, I would love for you to think about this with us a little bit, is the importance of not just focusing on calling the right questions, bringing the right people to the table, but we have as much internal work to do within our organizations if we want to really promote and advance an agenda around racial equity and justice in these systems as we do. Um, so internally focused as much as externally focused. You know, Claire, how do you see tools like uh, the, this organizational prime or other mechanisms? How do they help us get to this interrogation of the individual and institutional and the relationship of that as we think about the role and the imperative we have to support our partners to do the same type of work? Like, I'm, this is a really complicated piece of business that we're taking on here. And so could you help us tease this out a little bit, Claire? Yeah, I'll do my best. Um that's all we can so ever I do. Think li- I think <laughs> I think life is complicated, right? So I think even in your even in your statement right there, and I think the heart of it is like this work is long and hard and challenging, and we should think thoughtfully about it. But I think we ought to also be careful in our continuing to frame it as challenging because I think it prevents our ability to really be open and like, okay, what is what is going to be required to do this? Um, and so frameworks help, primers help in that. They start a conversation. They allow uh, organizations and people within an organization to have an initial conversation around terms, definitions, concepts, to give them a foundation. So once that foundation is set, then they can build upon the foundation. So primers, tools really allow people to, to build the muscle. I talk about this work in terms of building muscle. It gives them the tools that they need to start building the muscle and normalizing their approach to this work, right? To engaging in conversations about topics that can be uncomfortable, but are still reality for lots and lots of people. And so tools, I think, can be really helpful and useful, but there has to be a personal commitment to leaning all the way in despite the risks, despite the discomfort, despite whatever is going to surface, right? And I think a part of that means we have to get rid of this notion of I want to do it perfectly. This work is about progression and not perfection. 
And so daily progression steps that we're taking. And that means one day I might not actually do the thing that I needed to do in order to move the work forward. But how do I the next day still say I'm committed to this and I'm going to keep coming back to the difficult conversation? I'm going to keep coming back to reflect on the way that I engaged with an individual and go and repair, you know, do some repair work in that context of the way that I engaged with someone was harmful or not compassionate, right? Or not filled with grace. I think a part of what we need to remember is that we're humans. We're humans navigating a system. And while this is system change work, people need systems as people, as humans and recognize our shared humanity and start from that space. And we're already limiting the progress that we can see in our society and in our organizations. I don't know if that fully answered your question, but I'm sure you have another one to give me if it well, didn't. Well, <laughs> you know, Claire, no, I, I think it it gets really to the heart of that, especially, in, and I was thinking as you were talking and then you, you landed it, is this idea of we have to grant ourselves grace in these moments and in our work that you said, you know, this has to focus on progression, not perfection, and how easy it is for us to collectively let, you know, great get in the way of good or to overly focus on, is this the right primer? Because if it's not the right primer, it's going to be messy, as opposed to let's try something with intentionality, um, with the right voices coming together to think about what's the right path forward. And so, Josh, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit in what you've seen over the last few years in your partnerships and in your work to do this systems building, for instance, about where have you seen folks leaning into that? Like, let's focus on the progress. Like, where are you seeing people making progress and moving the needle a little bit? And where do the gaps remain? And how are people feeling about those those gaps in terms of where we still have to travel? I so appreciate that question. And um, I, I love what Claire shared. A colleague of mine used to always say, never let the perfect get in the way of the good, right? And when you have the opportunity to do good work, you should go ahead and step into that. And so, you know, one thing um, this conversation is making me think of, we worked really intentionally with young people, right? There was a moment where we were working with a young person who was hosting an event for us, right? They were hosting an event, it's a launch event. This young person did such an incredible job hosting the event. I mean, was funny, witty, like just rocked the house. And afterwards, you know, a very prestigious, I'll say, employer partner wanted to take a photo with this young person. And so, you know, young person was so cool about it. Of course, yeah, let's take a photo. He's feeling himself. He's on cloud nine. And right before they take the photo, uh, the employer partner says, hey, do me a favor. Don't go to jail. Just randomly out of nowhere. Right. And so I hear this. Another, you know, colleague of mine, you know, they hear this. I look at the young man immediately, like super concerned about how he's receiving this kind of message. And he's so cool and suave, Kyle. He's like, yeah, I don't plan to. Poses for the photo and keeps it moving. <laughs> it was so cool and smooth. I mean, there, if I was him, I, there's no way I would have reacted in, in, in such a smooth way, right? But it, it, it made me think in that moment, even our champions slip up. Even our champions who, you know, support this work still have some growing to do, right? And so. In that moment, we decided, all right, we we need to do some work and we need to leverage the voices of our young people in, in a real critical way here. And so we started looking at language and how language can be either a bridge or a barrier to these opportunities, right? 
And so with that, we decided to do some work with our interns, with our high school students, with some of our college uh, students and said, hey, what are some of the words that you hear people use to describe you and your peers that don't feel good, that feel out of place, that don't represent you or your community? And then what are the other words you would hope that they would use to describe you and your peers, right? And so with that, um, with the brilliance of our young people, we were able to develop um, the Here to Hear Language Guide, which really analyzes the importance of using asset-based language as opposed to deficit-based language, right? And it was a tremendous experience, a tremendous process, because as we were doing focus groups, that we were speaking with young people, you know, they all had that, that shared understanding of like, listen, I am more than my zip code. I am more than, you know, my fitted hat. I am more than the Jordans that I wear, right? Like I am someone who is looking to learn and grow and develop and I need you to champion that for me. And so, you know, we, we've been able to share that guide across our network. Um, and it's, it's been one of those things where, you know, we've heard from, from partners and they've said, you know, I never knew I needed something like this until I actually got it in my hands. And, and I see the value of my words and I see the impact of my words. And this will allow us to kind of rethink how we want to approach young people in our spaces. So again, that's just an example of how young people can really help us in this space and help lead many of these conversations that we find difficult. Our young people are like, I'm ready to talk about it. Like, let's talk about it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to let you know how I feel and I'm happy to partner with you. So that way we can create, you know, safe and brave spaces for all students that will allow them to step into the, into this work in, in real powerful ways. Mm. Josh, I love the, you've always been such a champion for youth and youth voice and inclusiveness there. And the, the asset best language guide, I want to make sure that we get a link out to that for the listeners. Cause I, not just the origins of that work, but I think that that is such a gift and a contribution to this field. And the more people that can see that and whether they use yours or develop their own in partnership with their own teams, um, such a, a great and critical tool. Claire, anything coming up for you as you hear Josh talk about and, and introduce this arc, not just around noticing these moments and the resilience of young people, but bringing their voices to the table as we really start to interrogate and unpack these questions around what does it look like to center racial equity and justice in the design of systems so that their lived experience is different not just the outcomes. Yeah, so many things. I'm like silently finger snapping over here in the <laughs> in the corner, my corner of the world. You know, you know, if I had to one-liner it, I would say it's the intentionality for me. It's the the intention with with Josh and team here to here made a decision, right? They an incident happened, and that was such a perfect example of how our our individual internalized racist beliefs and ideologies show up in interpersonal interactions, right? That perpetuate harmful narratives, right? And, and it's not necessarily about intent. We have to look at impact. So we can't, I can't judge the gentleman's intent. And obviously he was a champion, yet still, right? The internalized beliefs and biases that lay dormant inside, unexamined, surfaced in a moment and here to here responded, right? We responded and said, we have to do something different. And what I'm sitting with is, is the question around what's the terms and language that makes you feel uncomfortable? Because a lot of times we strip our humanity from this work and we can't divorce our feelings, right? And who we are as people 
from the advancement we need to make within the context and within the work of racial equity and racial justice, right? Because I may not have the language to explain a thing, but I know how it makes me feel. And the way that it makes me feel is enough to say, this is not good. And so I love the the way that Josh described it around, how does this make you feel? What doesn't make you feel good? What doesn't make you feel right? And then what is what are the line, what are the you know frameworks or the language of the narratives that that empower you, inspire you? I'm using my own words here, but so that we can come up with a document that really is created not from an organization saying we know what's best, but from the people who are having to navigate those lived realities and interacting with people to then create a tool that I think, you know, the field, as you said, as you pointed out, Kyle, the field so desperately needs. And I think people really struggle with what I liked about the document is that breaks down language you shouldn't use, but also it adds this layer of nuance, right? There's nuance to this work. It's not don't use this and use this. It's like, actually, I need you to think intentionally about what you're trying to convey, how you can use this framing in a way that doesn't cause harm or doesn't make people feel or think negatively about themselves or their context, right? But it's more than just don't do this, do this, which I think many times this work becomes a checklist and we move in these binary way of operating, right? Right or wrong, either or. And this is both and. We have to hold the complexity of of this work, of doing our own internal work and recognizing where we have areas for growth, but also recognizing the moments where we are, we just did the thing, right? And we succeeded and we like can count it as a win. We have to hold all of that at the same time. Thank you, Claire, for, for sharing that. I think that's that's so spot on. I would just say, I think um, accountability plays a, a significant role here too. And so while that language was used, we were intentional and in not just like saying, okay, you know, this person said that thing, we're going to leave it alone and we're going to just work with the young people. We brought it to that person's attention. I said, listen, you caused some some real harm here, um, you know, and it may not have been intentional, but here's the impact, right? And they made it right as best as they could. So they called that young person. They apologized. They apologized to me and my other colleague that, that heard that comment. So it's also naming it and holding folks accountable. This is an opportunity for all of us to learn and grow. And true partnership means that we're in this together, right? And I can hold you accountable for saying something like that and say, hey, we need to do better. And so I'm happy that it turned out the way it did because it, it showed what we can do and the kind of progress we can make if we're unafraid in this work and, and we're move, we move in this work with, with real integrity and, and like Claire said, intentionality. So I would love to introduce one more idea into this conversation. And that is something I encountered when I read a piece by um, Jeffrey Duncan Andrade back in 2009. And I was really blown away by what he framed as this idea of critical hope. Um, And he's a student of Paulo Freire and drawing forward ideas around praxis and reflection and action. And, you know, so what he outlines is this idea of critical hope and that as opposed to what he calls hokey hope or mythical hope or hope deferred. And I love the way he names those as enemies of what he calls critical hope. But this is about our ability to simultaneously be engaged in, in both reflection and action and to take real stock of the reality in which we are confronted with through an equity and justice lens um, in relation to the thing we want to be true, the vision we hope to bring forward. And so, right, critical hope is not about just feeling good about ourselves and saying, like, I'm just doing a good enough job here. And it's not about wishful thinking or waiting for some miraculous distant future to arrive and utopia has, has come here. It's about our active engagement in this 
the goal and the and the process, the the reflection and the action. So I would love to ask you each in turn to to go here with me for a moment. And so Claire, when you consider this this frame around c- critical hope um, in our collective work to transform these education to career pathway systems, what comes up for you? Like where does this touch down or resonate with you? You know, Kyle. Um came to me as you were talking, and I've been trying to find more just analogies to to really um, kind of let this work cement in people's minds and hearts. And what came to me was we engage in critical hope all the time. Every time we say, I want to change my health lifestyle, right? I want to go on a health and fitness journey. So I recognize where I am now is not exactly where I want to be. Yet there are some changes that I need to make in order to, to lose the 50 pounds, right? Or in order to get the muscles in my arm that I want to see. So I recognize where I am now. I identify where I would like to be. And I do the work that's required in between. I just want to encourage folks because we do this all the time. We hold the complexities of what it means to acknowledge what is and work towards what can be in every other area of our work. This work of racial justice is no different. Society has created as such that is challenging to have this kind of conversation, but we do this normally in our lives and we decide something isn't working and I want to do something different and there's a goal I'm working towards. So that's what came to my mind, right? And if I had to kind of one-liner it, we've done great work and we're doing great work and we've done harm. We've got to acknowledge both and keep moving towards, right, the, the goal that we have ahead while addressing the issues that that lie in front of us. Thank you for that. I love bringing in that additional analogy. And um, I don't want to talk about my quarantine 15, but uh, that really resonates with me. Josh, I want to give you a chance to talk about critical hope here. And so, and where do you see this? And and I also love, you know, the, um, the analogy that, that Duncan Andrade brings forward around, you know, roses growing in concrete. And so, like in the systems in which you're working in New York City, like where do you see these roses of critical hope emerging from the, the, the concrete jungle? And, you know, how do you cultivate and sustain that in the work that you do? I think about the, the power of coalition, right? And, and how mobilizing champions has been paramount to, to our efforts around work-based learning and equity, braided pathways. Um, but I see this idea really live in our schools, right? Think about where schools have been over the past couple of years. We see our teachers being continuing to be innovative when, when thinking about how they can explore, you know, work-based learning with their students. You know, we have, uh, you know, one of our school partners, you know, uh, as part of their community outreach program, like students are able to build rowboats, right? And so think about like being a ninth grader and trying to figure out what you want to First of all, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing high school for the first time. I I'm trying to find myself. And you come in and once a week, you're, you're like hammer, nail, wood, and you're building a rowboat. And then you're learning about the ecology of the Bronx River. And now like your mind blows up in terms of all the potential that may exist in that world, right? And so with, we're seeing tons of innovation and creative thinking with our school partners, our students that, are, that continue to show up and trust adults and trusting the foundations that are put in front of them to, to help them explore these pathways. I, I think we have to give our young people a tremendous amount of, of credit for the ways in which they've shown up. 
particularly over the past couple of years, many students, you know, not entering a high school building until their junior year of high school, right? And what what's the impact for that young person as it connects to their education and how they think about their career? And they continue to have hope, right? They continue to, to lean into this work. They continue to trust organizations and, and CBO partners to explore careers and opportunity. I just think, you know, reflecting on the power of coalition, reflecting on mobilizing champions in a way that creates the, the space and the conditions or the route rather to, to create a healthy environment for these young people to explore has been, has been critically important in this work. Mm. Thank you for painting that picture for, for this. Thank you for lending your time and insights and passion and your curiosity uh, and your partnership to this conversation and our work today. Um, I really appreciate you both, the work that you do, and for being a part of this journey with us. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Claire. Thank you both. Claire and Josh reminded me today that the work we do on ourselves and at home is as important as the work we do with our partners. I also leave this conversation with a grounded sense of hope that this work is not impossible and requires intentionality and holding people's humanity at the center of our conversations and our practices. Be sure to check out the show notes for materials referenced by Claire and Josh. We hope they're helpful in your own work and thinking. And we'll pick up on some of the threads in this conversation in our next episode, as we explore the idea of designing for intended consequences, sharing how some of our partners are bringing this about in regional pathways systems development. Thanks for listening to Building Equitable Pathways, brought to you by JFF. Together, we're driving transformation of the American workforce and education systems to achieve equitable economic advancement for all. To learn more about Building Equitable Pathways and our coalition of partners, visit us online at jff.org. And we want to hear from you and have you join the conversation. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, and tune in for our next episode. This is Kyle Hartung from JFF, signing off until next time.